0: Section 27 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12, The Repeal Year, Part 1. The year 1843, said O'Connell, is and shall be the great repeal year. In the year 1843, at all events, O'Connell and his repeal agitation was entitled to the foremost place. The character of the man himself well deserves some calm consideration. We are now, perhaps, in a condition to do it justice. We are far removed in sentiment and political association, if not exactly in years, from the time when O'Connell was the idol of one party and the object of all the bitterest scorn and hatred of the other. No man of his time was so madly worshipped and so fiercely denounced. No man in our time was ever the object of so much abuse in the newspapers. The fiercest and coarsest attacks that we can remember to have been made in the English journals on Cobden and Bright during the heat of the anti-corn law agitation seem placid, gentle, and almost complimentary when compared with the criticisms daily applied to O'Connell the only vituperation which could equal in vehemence and scurrility that poured out upon o'connell was that which o'connell himself poured out upon his assailants his hand was against every man if every man's hand was against him he asked for no quarter and he gave none we have outlived not the time merely but the whole spirit of the times, so far as political controversy is concerned We are now able to recognize the fact that a public man may hold opinions which are distasteful to the majority, and yet be perfectly sincere and worthy of respect. We are well aware that a man may differ from us even on vital questions, and yet be neither fool nor knave. But this view of things was not generally taken in the days of O'Connell's great agitation. He and his enemies alike acted in their controversies on the principle that a political opponent is necessarily a blockhead or a scoundrel it is strange and somewhat melancholy to read the strictures of so enlightened a woman as miss martineau upon o'connell they are all based upon what a humorous writer has called the fiend in human shape theory miss martineau not merely assumes that o'connell was absolutely insincere and untrustworthy but discourses of him on the assumption that he was knowingly and purposely a villain not only does she hold that his repeal agitation was an unqualified evil for his country and that repeal if gained would have been a curse to it but she insists that o'connell himself was thoroughly convinced of the facts she devotes whole pages of lively and acrid argument to prove not only that o'connell was ruining his country but that he knew he was ruining it, and persevered in his wickedness out of pure self-seeking. No writer possessed of one-tenth of Miss Martineau's intellect and education would now reason after that fashion about any public man. If there is any common delusion of past days which may be taken as entirely exploded now, it is the idea that any man ever swayed vast masses of people, and became the idol and the hero of a nation by the strength of a conscious hypocrisy and imposture o'connell in this repeal year as he called it was by far the most prominent politician in these countries who had never been in office he had been the patron of the melbourne ministry and his patronage had proved baneful to it one of the great causes of the detestation in which the melbourne whigs were held by a vast number of english people was their alleged subserviency to the irish agitator we cannot be surprised if the english public just then was little inclined to take an impartial estimate of o'connell he had attacked some of their public men in language of the fiercest denunciation he had started an agitation which seemed as if it were directly meant to bring about a break up of the imperial system so lately completed by the act of union he was opposed to the existence of the State Church in Ireland. He was the bitter enemy of the Irish landlord class, of the landlords, that is to say, who took their title in any way from England. He was familiarly known in the graceful controversy of the time as the Big Beggar Man. It was an article of faith with the general public that he was enriching himself at the expense of a poor and foolish people. It is a matter of fact that he had given up a splendid practice at the bar to carry on his agitation, that he lost by the agitation pecuniarily far more than he ever got by it, that he had not himself received from first to last anything like the amount of the noble tribute so becomingly and properly given to Mr. Cobden, and so honourably accepted by him, and that he died poor, leaving his sons poor indeed it is a remarkable evidence of the purifying nature of any great political cause even where the object sought is but a phantom that it is hardly possible to give a single instance of a great political agitation carried on in these countries and in modern times by leaders who had any primary purpose of making money but at the same time the general english public were firmly convinced that o'connell was simply keeping up his agitation for the sake of pocketing the rent. Some of the qualities, too, that specially endeared him to his Celtic countrymen made him particularly objectionable to Englishmen, and Englishmen have never been famous for readiness to enter into the feelings and accept the point of view of other peoples. O'Connell was a thorough Celt. He represented all the impulsiveness, the quick-changing emotions, the passionate, exaggerated loves and hatreds, the heedlessness of statement the tendency to confound impressions with facts the ebullient humour all the other qualities that are especially characteristic of the celt the irish people were the audience to which o'connell habitually played it may indeed be said that even in playing to this audience he commonly played to the gallery as the orator of a popular assembly as the orator of a monster meeting he probably never had an equal in these countries. He had many of the physical endowments that are especially favourable to success in such a sphere. He had a Herculean frame, a stately presence, a face capable of expressing easily and effectively the most rapid alternations of mood, and a voice which all hearers admit to have been almost unrivalled for strength and sweetness. Its power, its pathos its passion its music have been described in words of positive rapture by men who detested o'connell and who would rather if they could have denied to him any claim on public attention even in the matter of voice he spoke without studied preparation and of course had all the defects of such a style he fell into repetition and into carelessness of construction he was hurried away into exaggeration and sometimes into mere bombast But he had all the peculiar success too which rewards the orator who can speak without preparation he always spoke right to the hearts of his hearers on the platform or in parliament whatever he said was said to his audience and was never in the nature of a discourse delivered over their heads he entered the house of commons when he was nearly fifty-four years of age most persons supposed that the style of speaking he had formed first in addressing juries and next in rousing Irish mobs, must cause his failure when he came to appeal to the unsympathetic and fastidious House of Commons. But it is certain that O'Connell became one of the most successful parliamentary orators of his time. Lord Geoffrey, a professional critic, declared that all other speakers in the House seemed to him only talking schoolboy talk after he had heard O'Connell no man we now know of is less likely to be carried away by any of the claptrap arts of a false demagogic style than mr roebuck and mr roebuck has said that he considers o'connell the greatest orator he ever heard in the house of commons charles dickens when a reporter in the gallery where he had few equals if any in his craft put down his pencil once when engaged in reporting a speech of o'connell's on one of the tithe riots in ireland and declared that he could not take notes of the speech, so moved was he by its pathos. Lord Beaconsfield, who certainly had no great liking for O'Connell, has spoken in terms as high as any one could use about his power over the House. But O'Connell's eloquence only helped him to make all the more enemies in the House of Commons. He was reckless even there in his denunciation although he took care never to obtrude on parliament the extravagant and unmeaning abuse of opponents which delighted the irish mob meetings o'connell was a crafty and successful lawyer the irish peasant like the scottish is or at least then was remarkably fond of litigation he delighted in the quirks and quibbles of law and in the triumphs won by the skill of lawyers over opponents he admired o'connell all the more when o'connell boasted and proved That he could drive a coach and six through any act of Parliament. One of the pet heroes of Irish legend is a personage whose cleverness and craft procure for him a sobriquet, which has been rendered into English by the words twists upon twists and tricks upon tricks. O'Connell was, in the eyes of many of the Irish peasantry, an embodiment of twists upon twists and tricks upon tricks, enlisted in their cause for the confusion of their adversaries he had borne the leading part in carrying catholic emancipation he had encountered all the danger and responsibility of the somewhat aggressive movement by which it was finally secured it is true that it was a reform which in the course of civilization must have been carried it had in its favour all the enlightenment of the time the eloquence of the greatest orators the intellect of the truest philosophers the prescience of the wisest statesman had pleaded for it and helped to make its way clear. No one can doubt that it must in a short time have been carried if O'Connell had never lived, but it was carried just then by virtue of O'Connell's bold agitation and by the wise resolve of the Tory government not to provoke a civil war. It is deeply to be regretted that Catholic emancipation was not conceded to the claims of justice. Had it been so yielded, it is very doubtful whether we should ever have heard much of the repeal agitation. But the Irish people saw, and indeed all the world was made aware of the fact, that emancipation would not have been conceded, just then at least, but for the fear of civil disturbance. To an Englishman looking coolly back from a distance, the difference is clear between granting today, rather than provoke disturbance, that which everyone sees must be granted sometime, and conceding what the vast majority of the English people believe can never with propriety or even safety be granted at all. But we can hardly wonder if the Irish peasant did not make such distinctions. All he knew was that O'Connell had demanded Catholic emancipation and had been answered at first by a direct refusal, that he had said he would compel its concession, and then, in the end, it was conceded to him. When, therefore, O'Connell said that he would compel the government to give him repeal of the Union, the Irish peasant naturally believed that he could keep his word. Nor is there any reason to doubt that O'Connell himself believed in the possibility of accomplishing his purpose. We are apt now to think of the Union between England and Ireland as of time-honoured endurance it had been scarcely thirty years in existence when o'connell entered parliament the veneration of ancient lineage the majesty of custom the respect due to the wisdom of our ancestors none of these familiar claims could be urged on behalf of the legislative union between england and ireland to o'connell it appeared simply as a modern innovation which had nothing to be said for it except that a majority of englishmen led by threats and bribery forced it on a majority of irishmen mr lecky the author of the history of european morals may be cited as an impartial authority on such a subject let us see what he says in his work on the leaders of public opinion in ireland with regard to the movement for repeal of the union of which it seems almost needless to say he disapproves o'connell perceived clearly says mr lecky that the tendency of affairs in europe was toward the recognition of the principle that a nation's will is the one legitimate rule of its government all rational men acknowledged that the union was imposed on ireland by corrupt means contrary to the wish of one generation o'connell was prepared to show by the protest of the vast majority of the people that it was retained without the acquiescence of the next he had allied himself with the parties that were rising surely and rapidly to power in england, with the democracy whose gradual progress is effacing the most venerable landmarks of the constitution, with the free traders whose approaching triumph he had hailed and exalted in from afar. He had perceived the possibility of forming a powerful party in Parliament which would be free to cooperate with all English parties, without coalescing with any, and might thus turn the balance of factions and decide the fate of ministries. He saw, too, that while England in a time of peace might resist the expressed will of the Irish nation, its policy would be necessarily modified in time of war, and he predicted that should there be a collision with France, while the nation was organized as in 1843, repeal would be the immediate and inevitable consequence. In a word, He believed that under a constitutional government, the will of four fifths of a nation, if peacefully, perseveringly, and energetically expressed, must sooner or later be triumphant. If a war had broken out during the agitation, if the life of O'Connell had been prolonged ten years longer, if any worthy successor had assumed his mantle, if a fearful famine had not broken the spirit of the people, Who can say that the agitation would not have been successful no one we fancy except those who are always convinced that nothing can ever come to pass which they think ought not to come to pass at all events if an english political philosopher surveying the events after a distance of thirty years is of opinion that repeal was possible it is not surprising that o'connell thought its attainment possible at the time when he set himself to agitate for it even if this be not conceded it will at least be allowed that it is not very surprising if the irish peasant saw no absurdity in the movement our system of government by party does not lay claim to absolute perfection it is an excellent mechanism on the whole it is probably the most satisfactory that the wit of man has yet devised for the management of the affairs of a state but its greatest admirers will bear to be told that it has its drawbacks and disadvantages. One of these undoubtedly is found in the fact that so few reforms are accomplished in deference to the claims of justice in comparison to those that are yielded to the pressure of numbers. End of section 27